Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about some of the suites for unaccompanied cello. Bach was not the first composer to write works for unaccompanied string instruments, but there weren't a great number of prior examples in existence before Bach ventured into the medium, and there's only one previous attempt by Domenico Gabrielli that he would likely have been aware of. So, Bach's solo suites, while not exactly exploring uncharted territory, were certainly novelties in their day, and it was some time before they were regarded as anything beyond mere technical exercises for the instrument. It was, in fact, close to the middle of the 20th century that Bach's works for unaccompanied cello, or as he put it, suites for cello without bass, started to be accepted as bona fide recital or concert pieces, thanks in part to the pioneering efforts of the great Spanish cellist Pablo Casals and a number of other great cellists following in his wake. We'll begin by looking at the first suite. It's in G major and features six movements, all but the opening prelude based in some way on one of the standard Baroque suite movements. The prelude seems in some ways to have a somewhat improvisatory quality about it and allows the cellist and the listener to work their way slowly into the piece as a whole. Before we try to penetrate a bit further into the opening movement, let me say a few brief words about the sources for the cello suites. There are various printed editions of the Bach cello suites, and the majority rely on the manuscript prepared by Anna Magdalena Bach, Sebastian's second wife and an accomplished musician in her own right. The manuscript doesn't indicate tempo or dynamics, although it does indicate articulations in some places, including slurs and staccato marks. It also apparently has a few errors in the notation of some repeated patterns, suggesting it might have been done in haste. But Anna Magdalena was a perfectly competent copyist who certainly would have been sensitive to her husband's musical intentions, and so her manuscript must therefore be considered an excellent source, since we're lacking a copy of the score in Johann Sebastian's own hand. There are also later manuscripts, some of them presumably based on an original by C.P.E. Bach, that are also consulted in putting together a modern performance edition. Looking at the piece itself, we start quite simply with an arpeggio and 16th notes up the tonic triad of G major, starting on a low G, the root of the chord, jumping to the fifth, and then leaping up a seventh to B, the third of the chord, a simple but quite euphonious gesture in the middle of the cello's range. These opening three notes, which are slurred together, are followed by a lower neighbor figure starting on the B, dipping down a note, and then returning to the original note. These two ideas, the broad-spanning arpeggio and the lower neighbor figure at the top of the arpeggio, constitute the leading ideas or motives for the first half of the piece. Here is a slower-than-usual version of the opening four measures. Right from the beginning, Bach is actually implying three different lines of melody, bottom, middle, and top. The bottom line is the most obvious because it stays on the low G, the tonic. It's true that in the pattern Bach begins with, you only hear that low G on beats one and three of each measure, but those are the strongest beats of the measure, and it's enough so that that line, the line starting on G, will stick in your consciousness. Now, one might well argue that it's not much of a line at first because it just sticks to that one note for four and a half measures. And that's true, of course, because that line, that bottom line, is starting out by acting as a pedal beneath the changing chords above, something we've seen on a number of other occasions, most notably in some of the opening French overtures in the orchestral suites. The top line is the next easiest to hear since it represents the peak of the arpeggiated chord. That line starts on the B I mentioned earlier and is repeated six times in the first bar, ornamented by the lower neighbor figure, before moving up a half step to C which is now the top note of the arpeggiated chord. That C is articulated again and again in the second measure, where it's part of an arpeggiated C major chord, the so-called subdominant chord in the key of G major, and then again in the third measure, where it's the fifth of an F-sharp diminished chord, which is often referred to as a leading tone chord because its strong tendency is to resolve up a half-step to the tonic chord. Here's another example designed to make it very easy to hear the top-line melody. In this example, I've added a MIDI flute part sustaining the top-line melody. That makes it a little too obvious, of course, and it's really more interesting when you hear the line emerging from within the pattern. Mm-hmm. 
As you probably noticed from that example, that third measure has a bit of tension to it because the bass note heard on beats 1 and 3 is still sitting on a G, and that G is dissonant or clashes with the leading tone chord, which is made up of the notes F-sharp, A, C. It's the sort of dissonance that we hear a lot in box music, and the music of many other composers as well, of course, but the dissonance is only temporary because the next chord that is arpeggiated against the repeated bass note is another tonic chord, GBD, and so the dissonance is resolved or dissipated. The middle line, the implied melodic line in the middle of the arpeggio, is the hardest to hear, at least initially. That line starts on D, which was the second note to be struck in that ascending arpeggio that began the piece and then passes in the second bar to E, in the third bar to F-sharp, and in the fourth bar to the upper G, so that, although the first measure and the fourth both have an arpeggiated G major chord, they sound a little different, because in the fourth measure, the chord is actually lacking the D, the fifth of the chord. Still, the context is so clear that everyone will still hear it as a bona fide G major tonic chord. Here's another example, this time with the MIDI flute part sustaining that middle melody. Obviously can't go on with this level of detail because it quickly gets tedious for most people, but I did want to describe the kind of contrapuntal activity, the interplay of active melodic lines, that can emerge from arpeggios played even by a single instrument playing one note at a time. Looking just at the harmonic context for a minute, those first four measures set up a pretty simple pattern. As I suggested earlier, the first chord is a tonic triad in root position, meaning that the root of the triad is heard in the bass. The second measure features a four chord or subdominant chord, but this time it's an inversion, second inversion actually, because the fifth of the chord, the repeated G, is in the bass rather than the root. The third chord is the dissonant one I mentioned earlier, the leading tone diminished chord over a G pedal bass. And the last chord, the fourth chord, is back to being a tonic chord. That's a very common sort of harmonic progression in Baroque music or 18th century music in general. And it comes as no surprise that Bach starts to introduce some harmonic variety and even to hint at modulation to a new key already by the fifth measure, even as the melody continues to make use of some of the same motives, leaps within triadic or chordal intervals, and some lower neighbor figures. Interestingly, and as somewhat of an aside, the renowned theorist Alan Winnell designates this point, the fifth measure of the prelude, as the beginning of the second of four sections that make up the movement, even though we're no more than a few measures into the piece. He does so because we are, at this point, beginning to introduce new tonal centers and because the highly recognizable opening thematic materials are, if not completely shelved, at least beginning to share attention with other melodic patterns. Winnell's book is worth mentioning at this point. Although he certainly makes an attempt to write for general audiences, or at least those interested in classical music, he does occasionally get bogged down in jargon, which is not easy to master right out of the gate. But Winnell's book provides a very thoughtful, detailed, and precise analysis of all six unaccompanied cello suites at a level far beyond anything I'm going to attempt for these podcasts. And as such, the book may be worth looking into for people interested in pursuing the subject on that level. Okay, back to the prelude for the G major suite. We move from G major in a rather conventional opening progression, to a somewhat more chromatic vocabulary by measure 6, and we begin our journey to establish D major as the new key. On the way there, Bach employs several secondary dominants, that's a term we've used before, indicating that Bach uses chromatic chords, which seem to suggest, if only temporarily, that a new and different chord is acting as the tonic. Using this technique, Bach first suggests that D major is the temporary tonic, but the effect is short-lived. Soon, it's the supertonic chord, the A minor chord, built on the second scale degree in the key of G major that seems to be acting as tonic. Then, it's the submedian chord, the E minor chord, built on the sixth scale degree in the key of G major. And Bach doesn't stop there. Every two bars or so, we get the idea that, however briefly, a new chord has been established as the tonic. In other words, it's a very restless section of the piece, harmonically speaking, with increasingly shorter phrase lengths, which itself tends to add a sense of urgency, and as we approach the fermata or hold, 
we hear an increasingly dramatic use of the cello's lower register, and all this tension is by no means all resolved when we actually reach the fermata, not quite halfway into the piece, on a dominant chord. Let's hear some of the first section up to the fermata I just mentioned in a real performance. Of course, you noticed a big difference between my little MIDI demos earlier showing the opening four bars and the same four bars as performed by an actual cellist. My version sounded very machine-like because it was. I made no attempt to use the software to indicate any expressive nuances. But in an actual performance, you are likely to hear any number of expressive nuances applied to the music. Ritardandos, slowing down of the pulse, or accelerandos, the speeding up of the pulse, as well as subtle fluctuations in volume and the use of articulations. Although different cellists naturally take different approaches to these suites, this opening prelude in particular, given its somewhat improvisatory nature, is almost certainly going to be the subject of interpretive gestures, uh, for example, tempo manipulations in accordance with the fluctuations of tension and release within the music. The performance heard here, which happens to be by Janusz Starker, an excellent cellist who has recorded these works multiple times, shows one approach, and not a particularly extreme one at that. But there are a number of other approaches that could be equally valid, especially if the expressive nuances are applied with some consistency. Moving on now to the rest of the prelude. At first glance, you might expect that the fermata or hold on the dominant, which you just heard and which seems to divide the movement more or less into two halves, would represent something of a resting point or a moment of repose. But as I indicated earlier, that's just not the case. For one thing, the chord which Bach pauses on is not simply a dominant chord, it is a dominant seventh chord. That seventh means we're not going to hear the chord as the new tonic in the key of D, but rather as a dominant seventh that still wants to resolve back to the original tonic of G major. And in fact, as the movement proceeds, the need to resolve is not satisfied. Just the opposite, it's prolonged. The mostly scale-wise passage that follows, if anything, escalates the tension by adding another dissonance on top of the dissonant seventh, at least for a little while. After three and a half measures and a shift to broader, more arpeggio-based melodic figures, we finally get a sense of resolution. All of those dominant-sounding melodic patterns finally resolve to a pattern which suggests the tonic chord, G major. But it's not a very satisfying resolution. When the G major chord arrives, it's not in root position, and most emphatic and convincing cadence almost always involve resolving to a root position tonic, a chord where the G, the root of the chord, is actually in the bass. Furthermore, we've barely had time to absorb the resolution to the tonic when it is undermined by the introduction of some rather exotic chromaticism, which really confuses the issue in terms of the prevailing tonality. Here's an example of this. The first chord you heard is a G major chord, arpeggiating up from the fifth. But what comes after that doesn't sound at all like G major. It sounds more like we're heading off toward D major again. So the point is that there's really no completely satisfying sense of resolution to G major. Not yet, anyway. Bach wants to keep the pressure up a little longer. As the second half of the movement continues, things do stabilize somewhat. Bach begins to exploit a melodic figure, which begins with a low note in the cello, which then jumps up to a much higher note, which then descends quickly down the scale in 16th notes. 
It's an idea which he likes well enough to do a couple of sequential repetitions of it before he breaks off into the sort of figuration pattern that we've heard before in Bach concertos and elsewhere, a pattern where a melodic line alternates with a repeated note. This pattern quickly evolves into a new bariolage pattern, where Bach repeats the same note but on two different strings, resulting in a unique sonority. This, in turn, passes into another particularly striking figuration pattern in which the music charges dramatically up a chromatic scale, returning every other note to a repeated D. This chromatic scale climaxes with a return to a high G, sounding once again like the real tonic of the movement, after which we hear three bars of arpeggio patterns, somewhat reminiscent of the opening bars of the movement, because of the repeated suspension, which finally resolves to a final G at the end of the movement. We'll hear the last part of the second section, beginning with a sequentially repeated phrase I referred to a minute ago, and continuing to the figuration patterns, the dramatic chromatic ascending line, and the final arpeggios leading to the conclusion. first of the actual dances, the Alemann, comes next. It's simply French for the word German, which, of course, shows its country of origin. The German Baroque theorist Johann Matheson, who was fond of reflecting on the affective qualities of the various sweet movements, suggests that the Alemann embodies happiness, contentment, order, and peace. There is, of course, demonstrable order in Bach's Alemann, and the work is peaceful enough, although rather busy, not all Alemans are as elaborate as this one, with an almost constant flow of sixteenth notes. But most are, like this one, written with four beats to the measure, and begin with a single anacrusis or upbeat. At first glance, the melody may seem undistinguished and a bit rambling. After an opening G major chord with the third, be natural on top. By the way, all the notes are written on the first downbeat, but always arpeggiated quickly in practice, as you'll hear. After that opening chord with the B on top, we descend three steps down to the tonic note G. We embellish it with a lower neighbor, leap down a fourth, and then head back up the scale, all in sixteenth notes. From that point on, we hear a near-constant flow of sixteenth notes, only occasionally interrupted by a dotted eighth note, which charge up and down in scale-wise passages, the pattern broken periodically by arpeggio-based movement. It doesn't initially appear as if we encounter any particularly distinctive motives, none at least comparable to the opening bars of the prelude we just heard. It almost seems as if the tune is simply wandering about. But on closer examination, it turns out that Bach has integrated the melody with repeated motives, and even sequentially repeated measures, or at least parts of measures. It's just that those unifying musical ideas recur in different contexts, so they're a little harder to recognize initially. Here's another fabricated example showing the first two beats only of measure one, then after a pause of measure two, then after another pause of measure three. In each case, you'll hear that lower neighbor figure I mentioned earlier always approach from above, but not always from the same note. Of course, you might well wonder whether a short three-note lower neighbor tone motive like this is even noticeable when it's approached differently and followed by different musical ideas. You can judge for yourself in a minute when I play the opening bars in an actual performance. But there are more obvious connections as we proceed. In the fourth bar, we hear, after an early cadence, a clearly expressed descending arpeggiation of the tonic chord, G major. Two measures later, Bach tonicizes E minor, meaning he temporarily makes that chord appear as if it's the tonic by prefacing it with a chromatic chord which sounds like it's dominant. You can't miss it. Some manuscripts insert a short trill on a D-sharp, a note that obviously doesn't belong in the key of G major, as a dead giveaway that he's about to shift key centers. When we get to that E minor chord, which is actually heard as the new tonic only very briefly, 
Bach asserts it using the exact same descending arpeggio, just shifted to a different pitch level, of course, that he used two bars earlier for the G major chord. There are other examples as well. Bach will sometimes repeat a melodic idea or part of that idea in the very next bar, sometimes in a virtually identical form, although since it's starting on a different pitch and usually implies a different harmony, we might not make the connection on first hearing. Although, as mentioned earlier, Bach touches briefly on other keys, he heads back to G major right before the end of the first section, confirming it with another solid multiple-stop chord similar to the one which started the movement. But since it's customary to end the first section on a dominant chord, if not in the actual key of the dominant, he almost immediately outlines a secondary dominant chord leading us to D major, and it's there on a dominant chord where he ends the first half of the movement. Here's the opening section of the Alamon, 16 bars long. Like most binary suite forms, a repeat is indicated, but we'll leave that out as usual. spend a bit less time on the second half of the movement. It's the same length as the first, 16 bars, and begins, of course, on the dominant, with some rather simple stepwise scale fragments, which outline the chord clearly. There are a few obvious allusions to the first section motives I pointed out, although lower neighbor figures again play a role. The context, and therefore the effect, is sometimes different. There is one rather distinctive melodic motive that gains currency as the second half proceeds, one without any obvious antecedent in the first half. It consists of two large descending leaps and eighth notes in a row, followed by a large ascending leap, and then, in two out of three occurrences, a series of descending sixteenths. Here's a simplified example showing the motive and how it's adapted. The first time you hear the figure, it starts on E, then it's repeated sequentially down a step two more times. Except, as you could hear, it's not exact. Even the initial three-note motive doesn't keep the exact same interval pattern when it repeats, and obviously what follows the three-note motive is a little different every time. Still, there's no question that you hear the pattern as an important part of the melodic continuity in the second section of the movement. Harmonically speaking, we would expect Bach to touch on other tonal areas, and he does, in a generally straightforward manner. The only exception to this occurs fairly early, the sixth bar of the second section, where, presumably in the key of A minor, he introduces a B flat. At first it seems a little jarring, but after it resolves to a dominant chord in A minor, it becomes recognizable in retrospect as what is called a Neapolitan sixth chord one of a number of chromatic chords often used as a sort of exotic dominant preparation chord, by which I mean a chord that intends to resolve to the dominant chord and then presumably to tonic after that. But that's really the only exotic touch Bach employs here, and although he hints at other tonal areas as he moves to the end of the movement, things proceed fairly predictably to the end. Here then is the entire second section without the repeat. Thank you. 
Quran, 10-3-4 time comes next, in its most commonly encountered slot following the Alamand. This movement begins with a much more distinctive motive than the last. After a quick upbeat, the first three eighth notes take a descending plunge from the tonic G, but in the second half of the measure, we quickly leap back up to an undulating sixteenth note figure a third above where we started. The next three bars follow a similar pattern. We'll call this idea number one, and here's what it sounds like. Although the pattern I just described is played four times altogether, it's never duplicated exactly. First of all, the intervals are different. Although the shape heard in the first half of the measure remains the same and is easily recognizable, the pattern begins on four different notes, and the descending intervals that follow are also different half the time. Also, the undulating sixteenth note figure in the second half of the measure is somewhat simplified in the second bar and in the fourth bar, instead of an undulating line, we get an ascending line of sixteenth notes. So, we encounter these initial thematic elements several times during the first 18-bar section of the movement, but seldom in the exact same form. Another important new thematic idea, different from what I've already described, occurs in measures 5 through 8. It's not as distinctive or as memorable, but plays an important role near the end of the first section and again in the closing bars of the second section. Beginning in the fifth measure, it unfolds very quickly, almost completely in sixteenth notes, and involves an initial lower neighbor figure, followed by a descending third in a scale fragment. The next measure repeats the pattern down a step. Later in the first section, this pattern makes a return, but in inversion. The direction of the intervals is reversed. It now employs an upper neighbor figure, and the last interval in the pattern is modified to create a dramatic ascending line which moves up the octave from the D, the fifth of the scale. It's not at all certain that you'll be able to completely hear the relationship between those ideas, especially the fact that the neighbor tone figures have been flipped on just one hearing, but you'll definitely be able to hear the dramatic ascending line spelled out by the last sixteenth note in each group since in many ways it's the dramatic high point of at least the first section of the movement. Here, then, is the entire first section without repeat. The second section of the Quran begins by recreating the opening two bars of the first section in the key of D major. The following measures branch out on their own to some extent, but the opening thematic ideas continue to dominate for several measures, even after the key moves toward E minor. It's actually the harmonic activity that presents the greatest novelty here. In bars 7 and 8 of the 24-bar second section, the cello outlines a French sixth chord on F. This is another one of those exotic chromatic chords, and there's nothing particularly French about it, that is sometimes used right before a dominant chord. Bach doesn't use these very frequently, but they often make quite an impact when they are used, as is the case here. This particular French sixth chord takes a somewhat circuitous route to the dominant chord, but gets there in time for a solid-sounding cadence on E minor. But predictably, Bach will not tarry long in E minor, and he's soon off on a journey that will take him through several keys before finally settling down once again on G major, the original tonic. He'll introduce some new, but generally standard, figuration patterns along the way before reintroducing a pattern we heard in the first section, the one in which an upper neighbor pattern in sixteenth notes is repeated with the last note in the pattern moving up a step each time. The effect may not be quite as dramatic this time around, but the reuse of this pattern, along with others I've already alluded to, makes this courant one of the most tightly integrated movements in this particular suite. Here's the second section of the movement. (laughs) ¶¶ 
The Sarabon that follows is in 3-4 time, in a moderate tempo or at times, and depending on the performance, sometimes a rather slow tempo. The sonority produced by the first of the triple stop chords, a single stroke of the bow starting with the low G, up the fifth and then up to the third of the chord, is strongly reminiscent of the triple stop sonority that began the Alaman. And we hear the same sonority again on beat two of the second measure, although this time it's embellished with a trill. As we've mentioned before, Sarabans, a dance style Bach was quite fond of, often feature accented or prolonged second beats. That is certainly the case in the opening measures, where three of the first four bars have elongated or trilled second beats, and it's true to some extent in the second section of the movement as well. The first bar emphasizes the stately grandeur so often associated with the movement, while the third bar initiates a new, much more rhythmically active thematic idea. The second and fourth bars, which resemble each other rhythmically, although less so melodically, both conclude the ideas begun in the previous measures. Here are the first four bars. The second four bars introduce some new thematic elements, most notably in the fifth measure, a descending arpeggio figure in sixteenth notes which, when it finally comes to rest more than an octave lower, ascends right back to its original note. The following bar does much the same thing a step higher, adding a trill at the bottom, and this time ascending upwards via a scale passage. The last two bars of the phrase, which head toward a cadence on the dominant, are somewhat less distinctive. Here are the second four bars of the first section. The second section of the movement is, like the first, only eight bars long, and features a greater concentration of multiple stops, generally triple stops, but also on the second beat of the first measure, a very rich-sounding quadruple stop. Well, typically we encounter mostly new ideas, but it's not the new thematic material that strikes the ear as much as the tonal restlessness. Already by the second bar, Bach introduces a trill D-sharp into the mix, suggesting that we're heading toward E minor. But by bar 5, Bach has again grown restless, and we quickly veer toward C major, and then A minor, with a somewhat surprising chromatic modulation. From there, it's just a short hop to a dominant 7th chord, and then to a final cadence on the tonic G major at the end of the movement. Here is the 8-bar 2nd section. Following the Sarabande is a minuet, two of them actually, with the second acting as a trio to the first, after which the first repeats, a pattern we've seen several times. It's an elegant, although occasionally bumptious, dance in 3-4, and although the minuet is not considered part of the standard Baroque suite, we've seen that Bach has incorporated quite a few of them in various contexts. Both of the minuets have points of interest, the minor key second minuet perhaps more than the first, with its cleverly disguised chaconne pattern. 
but we're going to skip over both today and head directly to the final movement of the suite, the Gigue. It is not surprisingly a sprightly movement written in 6-8 time. The first section is 12 bars long this time, and its initial motive dominates the proceedings. Here's a slowed-down version of the first four bars. The first two begin with a strong assertion of the tonic chord, but almost immediately afterwards seem to hint at the subdominant, before reconfirming the tonic with an arpeggiation of the entire chord in eighth notes. We'll call that motive A. Bars three and four move up the scale in quicker rhythms, ending on a half-cadence on dominant. This quicker rhythm figure, actually two-sixteenths followed by two-eighths, doesn't seem very important at this point, but it will before long, so we'll give it a label as mode of B. From here to the end of the first section, bars 5 through 12, it's the motive from the first measure, motive A, that receives by far the most attention, but things don't really get particularly interesting until Bach starts flirting with other tonal areas, launching for a while into D minor, a seemingly unlikely key given the opening declaration of G major, with just a hint of B flat major as well. Still, Bach returns to home base soon enough and closes the first section with a cadence on the rather predictable dominant. Here's an actual performance of the first section. The second section, at 22 bars, is not quite twice as long. It begins by quoting the opening bar of section 1, motive A, adjusted for the new key, of course, and then introduces a new and more interesting version of the motive I referred to before as motive B, heard in the fourth bar of my slowed-down example. That motive is now expanded, given a bit more breadth and, as the movement unfolds, provided with a more dramatic descending leap to finish it off. Here's another slowed-down example, this time of the first two bars of the second section, in which you'll hear familiar motive A and the new and improved motive B. This pair of motives is repeated sequentially a step higher, and Bach then breaks off the last three notes of motive B and plays with them a bit. So at times... Bach is playing just with the last three notes of motive B, and at other times he focuses on the first three notes, albeit with a somewhat different tag to finish them off. Nevertheless, all this motivic interplay notwithstanding, the second section of the Gigue probably gains its greatest interest from its key shifting. Bach moves first in the direction of E minor, conventional enough opening gambit, but then things get a bit ambivalent tonally speaking, and before we know it, we appear to be headed in the direction of G minor, before being jerked back somewhat unceremoniously to G major. Then, back at home base, he comes up with a brand new variant of motive B and marches up the scale with it, all the way from G to E, once again implying two different melody lines at the same time, one at the top of the cello's figure and one at the bottom, before cutting off the pattern and cadencing quickly and finally on G major. The first cello suite as a whole has been widely praised for its consistently high spirits, clever exploitation of unifying motives, idiomatic sensitivity to the instrument, and an inventive approach to exploring the possibilities of timbral variety. And of course, we mustn't forget the ability, heard in each of the suites, to imply not only contrapuntal interest, despite primarily relying on a single melodic line, but to introduce a wide array of interesting harmonic effects and sometimes surprising tonal juxtapositions. As we move on to the second suite in D minor, we see that all of these qualities remain apparent, plus a new level of dramatic intensity. This is evident almost immediately in the opening prelude, which is, as usual, considerably longer and more complex than the dances which follow it. Because of that, we're going to again spend more time looking at the prelude than at the individual dances. The prelude begins simply enough with an ascending D minor triad, two eighth notes leading to a dotted quarter, followed by a faster moving descending passage in sixteenth notes, mostly moving by step. The second measure echoes this shape, but since it initially outlines a full diminished seventh chord, the quality is very different, much more tension filled. By the way, when I say full diminished seventh chord, 
I'm referring to a chord which is built exclusively upon the interval of a minor third. In this case, the notes C-sharp, E, G, B-flat. This sort of chord occurs naturally in the minor key, usually built on the raised seventh scale degree as it is here. I'll play an example in a minute. Measure 3 is also based on the same pattern, although it starts not on the root of the diminished seventh, but on the third of the chord. But it still maintains that sense of tension established in measure 2. Eventually, in the second part of measure 3 and into measure 4, this tension resolves as we return to the tonic chord. But the mood has been set and continues throughout most of the prelude. Here's an example with just the first four bars. You may have noticed that the second beat represents the high point in each of the first three bars, and it's elongated somewhat, especially in this interpretation. This emphasis on the second beat suggests to some commentators that this prelude shares at least some attributes with the traditional Sarabande. The form is certainly different than in a typical Sarabande, and you can't push the comparison too far, but there's no question that the first part of the prelude, at least, shows some rhythmic similarities worth mentioning. For the next 15 bars or so, Bach remains reasonably faithful to the pattern established in the first two bars of arpeggiating up a triad or seventh chord, and then balancing that ascending motion with a descending line. Sometimes the descending line moves by step, sometimes in a broken thirds pattern, but the general idea remains intact as he moves through a series of different triads, employing sequential repetitions and spun-out variants, until finally bringing about a modulation to F major. He doesn't stay in F major long, however, quickly affecting a chromatic modulation to G minor and then A minor. In this next example, you'll hear the opening measures through measure 18, where Bach arrives in A minor. Bach makes that first modulation to F major fairly obvious, since he restates the opening measure exactly as it was in the beginning, adjusted for the new key, of course. The other modulations may be a little trickier to pinpoint, since they take place within a flow of mostly 16th notes. But nevertheless, Bach, having finally arrived in A minor, seems content to remain there for a while. By measure 25, somewhat less than halfway through the movement, however, Bach is on the move again, tilting back toward D minor by way of a clever chromatic chord, another of those Neapolitan sixth chords, which is built on the rather unusual flat second scale degree. The motivic ideas from the first two bars, which Bach had relied on heavily up to this point, are now largely replaced by a series of new ones. The first of these is one of those patterns that seems to suggest two levels of melody at once. It's heard four times in a row, each time a third higher. Having exhausted this precise pattern, Bach goes on to exploit others, which resemble it in some ways, in a steady flow of sixteenth notes. Finally, nine bars before the end of the movement, Bach interrupts the sixteenth note flow to bring back something very much like the initial motive heard in the opening measure. The rhythm is the same, and the contour is somewhat similar. But what we encounter at this point is a much more dramatic version of the opening bar with the opening D minor triad replaced by much more expansive leaps, covering an octave and a half. It's a very dramatic gesture, happening twice within the space of three measures, 
and temporarily brings everything to a stop. But then, just as this unexpected reference to the opening bar had never happened, we return to our flow of sixteenth notes for a while, until, six bars later, we reach a fermata on a diminished leading tone chord, a triple stop for the first time in the entire movement. But we're soon back to the flow of sixteenth notes, playing mostly arpeggio-based figures, which again seem to imply two melodic lines at once, and, with some references back to even earlier motives, and after another triple-stop diminished chord, we surge on to the closing chords of the movement. At this point, the last five bars of the movement, we encounter a little ambiguity. All the existing manuscripts show dotted half-note chords in three parts, spelling out a typical cadence pattern on D minor. But most performances substitute a rapid arpeggiation in sixteenth notes for each chord, the sort of figuration pattern which Bach makes use of elsewhere, rather than simply sustaining the triple-stop chords for the entire three beats of each measure. Some performers may well believe that this sort of rapid figuration pattern is implied, since to play the four chords as written would seem to be an inordinately passive way to conclude a movement based to such a large extent on bustling sixteenth-note passages. In some performances, the chords are played on the very first beat of the measure, but the rest of the measure is filled in with a variant of the pattern presented six bars before the end, one bar before the sustained chords. Other performers play the chords as written, arguing that there's no authoritative basis on which to change Bach's score. I'm going to play the concluding bars in the version played by Janusz Starker in one of his recordings, which most resembles the second approach I just referred to. Regardless of the ending chosen, this prelude is as dramatic an opening to a suite of dances as it seems possible to imagine in the first half of the 18th century. The Alamand that follows is a much shorter movement, two sections of twelve measures each, but, like the first, shows some characteristics typical of the style, the most obvious being the opening sixteenth note pickup prefacing a strong downbeat on tonic expressed in a sonority-rich quadruple stop covering an octave and a half. There are also some differences between this allemand and the first we looked at. Whereas the first was an allabrev or cut time, suggesting a feel of two beats to the measure and a somewhat faster tempo, this one is in common time, implying four beats to the measure and a more moderate tempo. The first allemand was quite busy, rhythmically speaking, with an abundance of sixteenth-note passages, and the second is as well, although the sixteenth-note passages here are broken up by other, slightly less busy patterns a little more frequently. I mentioned earlier that the prelude is the most complex movement in the suite. It is, but that doesn't mean that this allemand is devoid of melodic subtleties. But in fact, it's a bit more difficult to find clear motivic relationships between different phrases or passages in this allemand than in the opening prelude. It begins, nevertheless, with the perfectly distinctive idea to which I've already referred. That big, bold, quadruple stop chord on D minor on the first downbeat gives way after a quick upper neighbor embellishment to a descending scale in sixteenth notes which soon springs back up for another cadence on tonic. From that point on, we move freely through a series of motives, some linked back to the first bar and others striving upward dramatically only to fall back to earth with a descending arpeggio. Bach moves first toward G minor, then F major, and then, after some unexpected chromatic twists, toward A minor, before that chord is, at the last second, transformed into major to prepare us for the repeat, which returns us to D minor. Here are the opening measures of the section. The second section, which I'm not going to play, is even more free-flowing in its continuity. 
There are some references to the motives from section 1, but they're seldom obvious. Bach does again make some interesting chromatic side trips, and you may be able to notice them, especially on a second hearing. The next movement, the Quran, in 3-4 time as usual, suggests the idea of running in the title itself, and there may be no better example of almost constant running, in 16th notes at that, than this movement. In fact, so continuous is the flow that it's difficult to locate phrase points, at least without relying on the harmonic evidence. In regard to its most important thematic elements, its opening motive on the first beat of the measure after the pickup note, a descending arpeggio of the tonic D minor triad is strong and clear, but Bach doesn't refer back to it as much as one might expect, at least not for the first section of the movement. From a tonal point of view, the first section behaves normally enough. It remains focused on D minor until the fourth measure, where F major begins to be insinuated, and then for the briefest of moments, Bach even hints at B flat major, before returning to F major and then to D minor. The last five bars of the section, however, move decisively to A minor, and the section ends there, where, as in the Allemande, a Picardy third is inserted in the last bar, turning the A minor chord into A major to prepare for the repeat of the section. Here is the first section. The second section of the Courant, which I'm not going to play, begins as usual on the dominant, but quickly reports back to the tonic of D minor, while everything happens quickly in this movement, employing a variant of the descending triadic motive I mentioned earlier, which began the movement. After that, Bach spends much of his time in F major, where some new thematic ideas are brought in, and Bach also revisits some of the other motives from the first section, as he eventually makes his way back to D minor for the final cadence. The Sarabande that follows has a unique personality and probably the most pervasive sense of atmosphere of any movement in the suite other than the opening prelude, so I'm going to spend a little more time with it. The main thematic ideas emerge, as usual, in the opening four-bar phrase. It begins with an unusually narrow-range melody moving up and down in the first three notes of the D minor scale, which adds to its dirge-like quality. Rhythmically, it's typical of its style, written in 3-4, with a dotted 8th-16th note figure on the first beat and an elongated and trilled second beat. The melody expands outward in the third measure, striving upward, only to fall back and then restate the original melodic idea in a slightly varied form. Bars 7 and 8 introduce variants of bars 3 and 4, which again seem to strive upward before falling back down, although in this case, creating a modulation to F major in the process. Bars 9 and 10 can be heard initially as a variant of the narrow-range melody of the first measure, which then once again strives to ascend higher. The anguish involved in this is almost palpable, due in large part to the dissonant yearning of the triple stops on beat 2 of both bars 9 and 10. Multiple stops are used effectively throughout this section, but never more so than in these two measures. But once more, the yearning or striving remains unfulfilled as the cello plummets to the lowest part of its range in measure 11 to prepare for the final cadence of the section. Here is the entire 12-bar first section.
The 16 measures second section, which I'm not going to play, is every bit as expressive as the first, beginning with variants of the opening two bars, but also making use of a more intense version of the cadential mode of hurt originally in measure 11, as the key moves toward G minor. Some new thematic ideas are heard as we proceed through the second section, but as we begin the long, circuitous, and somewhat tortured path back to D minor, Bach brings back variants of the original two-bar melodic statement once again. The two minuets that follow are somewhat conventional with their relatively short, simple phrases, but they are not trivial. The initial melody of the first minuet, though straightforward enough, is a strong one, with its momentum increased considerably by the descending bass line that underpins it for the first four bars. A little extra gravitas is provided by double or triple stops on every downbeat and on the last four chords. Just as in the first suite, where the second minuet served as a trio to the first in the opposite mode, the second minuet here provides a D major contrast to the rest of the suite. It employs a pleasant tune, rendered with only a single double stop on the first clear cadence, the only unusual aspect of which is its occasional fondness for plunging down a tenth or more from the first beat quarter note of the measure to the second beat quarter note. Other than that, we encounter mostly familiar melodic figures and gently undulating scale lines, undisturbed by harsh or unexpected harmonic maneuvers. The final movement of the D minor suite is a gigue, certainly along the same lines as the final gigue in suite number one, but with a few significant differences. Although both gigues begin with eighth note pickups, this one is in 3-8, and, unlike the first, has a number of larger melodic leaps sprinkled throughout, a typical characteristic of at least some gigues. The first section, 32 bars long, but going by very quickly in most performances, begins boldly, with several leaps, both descending and ascending, of sixths and sevenths in just the first few bars. Although Bach introduces a reasonable variety of rhythmic figures in just the first few measures, and some telling sequences as he proceeds, those boisterous leaps are clearly the most dynamic aspect of the melody, which seems at time to be surging upward and downward at the same time. There are a number of double stops as well, as opposed to the single double stop heard in the previous gigue, and they serve not only to fatten up the sonorities and create a greater sense of rhythmic urgency, but also to set up the lower voice as an independent melodic entity and, at times, create the effect of a repeated drone. Here is the first section. The second section begins by quoting its own version of the first four bars now in F major, but is soon taken over by swirling scale lines, only obliquely related to the repeated sixteenth note patterns heard in the first section. But some ideas from the first section do make an appearance, most notably the powerful effects derived from the double stops referred to earlier. Here's the second section. Together, it's a formidable gigue and a worthy conclusion to an excellent suite. So far, we've looked at just two of the unaccompanied cello suites by Bach. I think they represent a good introduction to the group of six, but the other four are also very worthy, and we may well return and take a look at at least some of the others at some point. But for the next episode, we're going to begin our investigation of Bach's powerful St. John Passion.